I could see Master's light in your eyes. The only thing important in life is to know God's bliss. We were put here for that purpose, and uh, our hearts are restless until we realize that goal. And I have difficulty speaking these days because my heart has become so full of bliss that What can I say? It's wonderful to be with you all and to understand and feel that this same brotherhood that we have through colonies, there's not seven colonies, it's eight colonies. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thank you. I feel like an absolute jerk, but I can't help it. <laughs> You see me in this strange color. Do you like it? I want to create a new renunciate order. I want it to be not in the old way. When, when Swami Shankara organized the, reorganized the Swami order in India, he had to deal with the age that they were living in then which was an age of great restriction of consciousness. Not only that, but women couldn't join it because the rules of the Swamis were to walk everywhere and uh, not to stay in one place more than three days. It wouldn't be appropriate for women to follow that way of life. But nowadays, if Swamis were to walk the highway, men or women, they'd either be asphyxiated by motor fumes or knocked over by a truck. <laughs> so what we need is uh, it's time to have, that was a, um, a period of uh, great restriction of consciousness, as I said, which made it necessary for people to think in terms of what they wouldn't do. They wouldn't be attached to this, they wouldn't be attached to that, neti, neti, not this, not that. But I think that in this new age of energy, times have changed and human consciousness has changed. And I think that what we need now is a more positive way to embrace the thought of renunciation, not pushing away, but embracing God's bliss, embracing his love, embracing love for other people. And in fact, the greatest reason that we have for loving everybody is to see that no matter how evil they may be in their actions, everybody is looking for just two things. One, to avoid pain, and the other, to find happiness. And happiness is just a human dimension of bliss. Everybody, because every God, the best definition of God that was ever given was Satchitananda, ever existing, ever conscious, ever new bliss. And this is what God is above everything else, even above love. Love is a manifestation of bliss. And so we, in understanding this, this positive aspect of God, we have to see too that everybody is basically seeking that bliss because that's what we've come from. St. Augustine, I think it was, who said, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And if you want to correct that, please do. Because <laughs> I forget exactly who said it, but it was one of those big boys there. 
<laughs> and uh, the, the, the thing that we're restless for is we all want this bliss. And this is why we should love everybody, because everybody is looking for the same thing. In Autobiography of a Yogi, Master met this one man who said that the one thing that unites, unites everybody is the stalwart kinship of selfish motive. That to me is not satisfactory. Of course we all have selfish motive as long as we have an ego. But the real kinship of all beings, not just men, is that they all are seeking bliss. This is the right uh, explanation of evolution itself. Life itself is always evolving toward finding that perfect bliss. And so in this new renunciate order, I want to have not, well, I mean, women obviously would belong. There's no difference between men and women as far as their worthiness goes. And this is a great mistake that you find in India, that they think that women are not qualified. Well, of course they're qualified. If they can't walk the highways and be bowled over by trucks, that doesn't make them less worthy spiritually. It's absurd. But I would like also for married people to become swamis. And I have some slightly selfish motive in this, in that I don't like being the only Swami at Ananda. <laughs> but, and there's another reason for it. Some man has been pushing me for years to make him a Swami. And I can't give him that leg up in the organization. So I've had to think about some way of bringing this thing to a higher level. So what you see here is the reason I'm wearing blue is that orange, which is the traditional um, color for swamis there, gero actually, but orange is as close as you can come in normal coloring. Orange is the color of fire. And the idea is that you burn up all your desires, burn up all your attachments, burn up. That's why I said neti neti, not this, not that, get rid of it all. I had, in fact, a funny thing happened to me the other day because I've often told people that one of the best things to do is every night before you go to bed, mentally build a bonfire and throw into that bonfire all your attachments, all your desires. And this woman said that I kept throwing my house into that fire and the house burned down. <laughs> well... I said, no, not your house, your attachments to it. <laughs> I'm not trying to start a worldwide conflagration. So anyway, orange is a good color for that renunciation of everything. And blue, however, is a more loving, expansive, calm thing. It's more positive, and I like it better. There's another aspect to it, though, too. I have met a lot of swamis in India who are absolutely egotistical. And one of the problems they've had is that it's a custom, customary in India to serve swamis. And swamis develop this attitude of being served. Well, that's not good. They should be there to serve people. They're not there to be served. There's a whole need to, in this age, now that we can understand. You see, back in those days, there's no, one, no way of saying you're the same as you or something like that. Now we know that matter itself is a manifestation of energy. And many scientists, including Max Planck in Germany and others, have said 
that in fact matter seems suspiciously like consciousness. Everything is consciousness. I remember back in Charleston, South Carolina, I was studying playwriting. I was wanting, that was, uh, that was my thought to become a playwright. I gave it up when I realized that, first of all, my purpose in writing plays was to help people to know truth. Secondly, I didn't know truth myself, so why flood the world with my ignorance? <laughs> so I gave up writing. But I remember I took this walk out into the night one, one evening and I asked myself, what is God? I had always tried to avoid him because it didn't make sense that he could be a sort of a stern judge, judging us for doing wrong and clapping us into, into hell for eternity. I mean, just think of eternal hell. Just think of somebody who, let's say, he's been born in a slum. And he finds that for his own safety, he has to join a gang. And in some gang war, he shoots somebody. And then at the age of 18, he gets shot. So he goes, you know, where? Well, after three billion years, somebody says to him, well, what are you down here for? Well, gosh, I don't quite remember. <laughs> I mean, a finite cause cannot have an infinite effect. It's absurd. It doesn't make sense. The faults of one little lifetime that you should be damned forever, this is a very good argument for reincarnation also. It takes time to, you know, it takes even a lifetime sometimes to overcome one major fault and maybe several lifetimes. No, I don't think that you can even think of God as loving if he doesn't give us chance after chance after chance until finally we get it right. But anyway, the goal of life is to find this Satchidananda, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. And this color, I think, suits this new, new mood. Now, what about married people who have children? I don't think they can be swamis. They have to reach the point where they have get, had their children. The children are a different karma. The, each child comes with its own karma. You can't be free until you've stopped having children. But there comes a point in life when you can. And I've called you tiagini. But I think what they need all to be at that point is tiagis and tiaginis. So I'll have to give you another name. <laughs> because um, I don't want it to be only people who aren't married. We have, I, we have more people married at Ananda who are deeply sincere than many monks and nuns that I have known. Sincerity is the important thing. And if you really are living for God above everything else, then I think that you too should become a Swami. And there is no objection to it in my mind. Therefore, in this new age, as Lahiri Mahashai would deliberately incarnate it as a householder in order to give householders the chance to have Kriya Yoga, also I think he wanted all men to have this chance, all men and women, to make it clear that I don't mean to be at all sexist, that all have the opportunity to completely dedicate their lives to God. Because I have seen among many of you that you have this quality, and I honor it in you. So partly for per perfectly selfish reasons, I don't like being the only Swami. <laughs> but at the same time, I think that this is the, this is the right time. I'll tell you what happened in, in my life. 
For many years I've been thinking about these things. Last May, when I left India, for a moment everything went black. Then it became okay. But the next day I found I couldn't remember things. And uh, I think it was a mini stroke. But anyway, when I reached Lugano, I was in such, I was in, in Italy, in, Indi in Switzerland. I, I was in such bad shape that I couldn't walk. I had to have, go by wheelchair everywhere. When uh, I went up to Manor, to the restaurant there, they had to carry me in my wheelchair. I couldn't go anywhere without it. I was very near death. I think that I could easily have died. Well, Miriam, who's my nurse, says I could have died for one of three reasons, any one of them. And I was very close to it, and I had been feeling that I wouldn't live after that for some months. But I felt great bliss inside, and I said to God and my guru, I don't care if you take me. I'm happy to go any moment. It doesn't mean anything to me. But if you want me to be in this body longer, to be serving you longer, then I'm happy to be here too. And all of a sudden, I felt this great wave of bliss, and I became very well. I, had, I was full of energy. I, could leave, I left even my cane in Azizi, and just uh, um, I've been somewhat striding over the lee, not quite <laughs> as a 20-year-old, but uh, nonetheless pretty active for an 83-year-old man. And I have to say that, that uh, I've taken on a new lease of life. So to be here tonight, just before I leave for Italy and India, well, I have these communities that I've started, and I have to sort of check in every now and then. <laughs> but last year when I was here, I wasn't able to come down to Sacramento. That's how ill I was. Now I could easily come, and I'm, <clears throat> I'm happy to go to all the centers that I can and visit Italy and so on. You know, the reason I'm going to Italy, because I've been there and it doesn't normally, that isn't the normally right thing to do for me to go from India to Italy to America back to Italy. I was in fact wanting to go through Singapore. And, uh, but there's a movie director in Italy who wants to do a movie of my life. And uh, there's a, uh, Anima, it's a, a um, channel, TV channel. They want to do a two-hour documentary of my life. So I pretty well have to go back for that sort of thing. <laughs> and this movie director wants to see me for 20 days, and I suppose they'll find some young, handsome man to play my... <laughs> but uh, I have to say now that I'm... Uh, this is my 61st year of discipleship. And I have to look back over years. There was a film crew that came up to Ananda just a couple of days ago. They wanted to do, a, they're doing a movie on Yogananda's legacy. And they asked me, Are there, do you have any regrets? I said, none. I am so grateful for everything that has gone in my life. Yes, I've had my tests. But they've been the best thing that ever happened to me, every one of them. Mind you, when you go through hard times, you think, oh, why is God doing this to me and so on? Well, I didn't have that thought. But uh, I must admit, when I was thrown out of SRF, it was a great tragedy for me. And uh, I wondered even for a while if my guru had abandoned me. And I said, well, you may abandon me, but I won't abandon you. 
And I came in time to understand it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And as I look back to over all over all my tests, and I've had my number of them, I have to say every one of them was a blessing. Remember this, that in this world, God was able to create the universe on the principle of duality, dvaita, so that when he, um, the one calm spirit, when he moved, uh, as it says in the Bible, he moved on the waters, there, there was a movement of vibration. He vibrated a part of his consciousness. And that vibration is always a plus and a minus. There has to be. So that every upward movement, there has to be a downward movement, like waves on the sea. You can't change the level of the ocean by having one high wave. There will have to be a corresponding trough. And so in this world of duality, every single thing, thoughts, everything, not just physical things, are ruled by this principle of duality. And if you have a hard time, which everybody goes through, don't think, why has God abandoned me? Just think, there's going to be some lesson that I have to learn. And be patient. It takes a little while sometimes. But don't worry. Those tests that you go through are the best thing that you have, to, the best thing that you go through, because they teach you lessons that you need to grow. And when I look back over my life, yes, I've had hard times. Yes, I've had uh, much stress in my life. I'm grateful for all of it. And had I remained in SRF, I wouldn't have been able to write all that music. I wouldn't have been able to write my hundred or so books. I wouldn't be able to take my 15,000 photographs. I wouldn't have been able to build these eight communities. I wouldn't have done anything. What a blessing it is for all of us. And I wouldn't have you all. <laughs> and it's such a, really, it's a great joy to be with you. Now, what I wanted to do today was because you're not going to see me very soon. I hope to be back in a year. But I'd like to give you a chance also to ask questions if you want to ask any. So. <laughs> yes. I have a question, sorry. Jyotish, you come here so I can, I'm hard of hearing. This, now I spring it on you. <laughs> As a young person... Come, come on the left side. Okay. I hear better on the left. <laughs> As a young person, she feels a lot of energy. And what should the main focus be, meditation or activity? If you meditate in the right way and if you act in the right way, both are to please God. And we should try to... Of course, God is always pleased. But by offering ourselves, the most important thing you can do is get rid of this sense of I'm separate from somebody else. I am not myself. I don't really exist, except as a bundle of self-definitions. But everybody is really just an expression of the same God. God is like, it's sort of like many pieces of broken glass in the sunlight. Each piece is different, but they all shine with the same sunlight. And so in all beings, God's bliss is present and evident. So whether you meditate, which is a good thing to do at least an hour a day, 
half an hour a day, 15 minutes a day, I'll bargain with you. <laughs> but if you will do that, then everything that you do, even when you have a job, try to make money, I should perhaps not put it negatively, make money, <laughs> um, you can still do it for God. So those who, who work in this world, can you think of their work as useful work? I remember when um, my father gave me some money to put into stock market, and he had me go to his stockbroker, and the stockbroker tried to get me to invest in things that would make more money, like cigarettes. I said, I'm not going to give him money to that. I don't believe in smoking. Well, I think that what you should always try to do, and I have done this very rigidly in my life, I've always tried to do what was dharmic. I know that many, unfortunately, many Swamis I know in India have taken shortcuts that way to get what they called a spiritual work moving. I have not done so. I've always been very strict about that. Once in the beginning years of Ananda, when I was earning all the money to start Ananda, there was a young man who came to me and he said, well, I've inherited a certain amount of money and I would like your advice. Should I um, join Ananda, in which case I can give this money to Ananda, or should I go to India? And I asked him how much it was, not because I wanted to know how much I could get out of him, <laughs> but to see if he had the money to go to India for a period of time. And he told me it was $200,000. Well, that in those days, like in 1969 or so, that was about a million dollars today. That was a very lot of money. I wasn't even tempted. I said, I think you should go to India. And one reason I said that was because I thought, had he really wanted to join Ananda, he wouldn't have asked the question. So I thought, you should go to India. But I have always, we, we many times could have failed, but I have always said no. First thing, there's a saying in India, yata dharma jaya. Where there is right action, there is victory. And I've adhered very strongly to that. In your work, don't cut corners. Realize that in the end, God is the one you're serving. So that if you're in business, don't tell untruths, don't twist the truth, don't put people ahead of, of, ahead of things. These, I think that these companies that are firing people because they're losing uh, money, I think what they should do is give everybody less money so they can all stay. At least up to a point, I think that would be a much more honorable thing than just suddenly somebody is told that he's out on his ear. Um, many ways I could elaborate on that question, but if you adhere to these principles, you'll be serving God. Okay? Yes. Do you mind if I sit down? No. Uh, <laughs> I won't see you as easily, but I... I don't have a young body anymore. <laughs> Say it again. Um, I know that non-attachment doesn't mean you don't love the folks that you love. What does non-attachment mean as far as that relationship goes? She knows that non-attachment is not for, not, for instance, not loving the people that you love. But what is non-attachment? 
<clears throat> if people betray you, if you're not attached, you can say, all right, it doesn't matter. If you can have things like a house and feel that I don't own this house, it belongs to God, then it doesn't, it doesn't worry you if you lose something. Um, that song, I got plenty of nothing and nothing's plenty for me. <laughs> That's a beautiful song. But uh, basically it means that you're not worried. You don't worry if people steal anything. Non-attachment means that you're not identified with those things. But when you're not identified, you can give much more love. You can give much more help. You can serve much more. And so it does not mean, and this is a very important thing, and I'm glad you asked that question, because many people think that they're non-attached. They don't care how other people behave. That's not non-attachment. You should give love, but don't demand it back so that your love becomes unconditional. And however people treat you, you don't suddenly have a lower opinion of them because they've insulted you or something. So non-attachment is inner freedom. Does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Um, yes, it does. Okay. Any other questions? Yeah. She's a lot of wrong things in the world. She's always feeling like she needs to fix them. What do, how can she know what God would like her to focus on? You know, this world is not perfect. You can't make it perfect by wishing it so. Henry David Thoreau said that if you see a wrong in the world, you've got to do what you can to correct it. There are too many wrongs. You have to pick your battles. You can't fight them all. So I would say that that which is the most important to you. Fight the battle on that front. In my life, I have seen, I remember a cousin of mine when I was in college who wrote me and said that she wanted to become uh, a doctor. She didn't become a doctor, but that was her thought at the time. And I said, well, that's certainly a laudable thing, and I, I would applaud it. But you, uh, you're saying that to me makes me think, well, what do I want to do with my life? I see that when people are well, they're still not happy. And so I would rather take people who are well or unwell, it doesn't matter, but those who aren't happy and help them to understand how to become happier. Now that was my particular thing, but everybody has something that he can give. I've often thought that those fields in which people themselves have suffered determine what they feel they want to do for humanity. Somebody who has been ill in past lives is more likely to be want, want to be a doctor. Somebody who has been um, crazy may want to be a psychiatrist. And uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you can say that so many of them seem crazy even today. <laughs> but the truth is that uh, that's why they feel that compassion. They've known what it is to go through the, that situation. It's people who have had no money, they want to help other people that way. But I, in my life, I have suffered mostly spiritually. The thought of, well, what drew, brought me across the country, when I, you know, when I um, 
when I had that, that night in Charleston when I was thinking, what is God? And I realized he has to be conscious. Otherwise, you can't call him God. You can't speak of God as just a blind force. And if he's conscious, then he must be consciousness. That his, he doesn't have a brain. It's not like a, the universe were a big brain. It must be that consciousness infuses everything. And that then the reason I myself am conscious is because I'm a part of his consciousness. And if this is true, then the more in tune I am with his consciousness, the more happy I will be. And I realized, looking back, that when I wasn't that in tune, I wasn't happy. When I felt clear in my mind and so on, I was closer to him and felt happier. So I remember I went back that night to my room. I was rooming with four other young men. And I was so staggered by these thoughts. I had never read them. I had never read about saints. I had never read about giving your life to God. It just, I didn't know anything. It's amazing how ignorant I was. But uh, I, just, I had determined that I would live my life to find God or to be more in tune with him. And uh, it was a very deep experience for me. I couldn't stand being in the kitchen with them all laughing and joking and so on. I had to withdraw. But then came the thought, well, maybe I'm going crazy. Nobody in history is, I've never heard of anybody finding God or getting closer to God. It seemed to me that maybe I was just losing my mind. And I finally had to come to the conclusion that even if it means losing my mind, it's what I have to do. And I had this deep desire, because I had been trying to improve myself, trying to overcome my faults and develop virtues and so on. It was like washing a dirty shirt. You get a bubble over here and you try to push it under and it just comes up over here. And it, uh, I, I realized it's just the attempt to become perfect was just impossible. I couldn't begin to overcome the things. And then another real worry came into my mind that I see everybody around me and I thought, I'm potentially like him. If he's a crook, I'm, I have the potential to be a crook. I have the potential to be a murderer. I have a potential to do anything that any human being has ever done. And I have the potential to rise also. But I felt this desperate need to know God. And I thought maybe if I go to South America where I could live simply and live as a hermit, I could meditate and seek God. But I didn't know what meditation was. I remember, and this is an interesting thing for you to keep in mind as a practical teaching, I was smoking at that time, I was 21, and uh, I decided that if I'm going to be a hermit, how can I smoke? I can't go to town and buy cigarettes. And <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to give it up. Well, every time I'd have coffee after my lunch or something, I'd, I'd remember how nice it was to smoke while having that coffee, and I would go back. It was like Mark, what, what Mark Twain said, that smoking's the easiest thing in the world to give up. I've done it a thousand times. <laughs> well, the thing is, and this is what I want you to keep in mind, when I did go back to smoking, I never said I failed. I always said I haven't yet succeeded. That's a very important thought in your mind, that every time you make a mistake, and who doesn't, 
Always say, I haven't yet succeeded. Don't identify yourself with your mistake. Identify yourself with your aspirations. Well, anyway, I did, I remember, I was still living in this Charleston thing, uh, apartment after a year, and I remember one of the one of my roommates came into my bedroom one night before I went to bed, and I said to him, well, I've given up smoking. And he said, oh, I've heard that one before. And I said, it was very serious. I had a half-empty packet of cigarettes in my pocket. I passed them out for two weeks until they gave out. I had not the slightest desire ever to smoke again. So remember, no matter what your faults are, if you keep on trying, you are perfect. You are essentially a saint. Yogananda used to say that a saint is a sinner who never gave up. But anyway, that's a very important point to keep in mind. Babaji, Jesus Christ, none of them have come into this world to tell us how great they are. They've come here to show us our own potential for greatness. And every one of you has that potential. And I see it in your eyes. And it's why I'm willing to give up my life, if necessary, to help you to find that. But when I remember, I had suddenly, I didn't know anything about Indian philosophy, although my, my discovery was of a Vedantic truth. But I remember it was very interesting. God, my karma must have been good in this case. Because before I found Yogananda, I, my father went to Egypt. He was posted there to conduct oil exploration there. He was a geologist. And the day that I put my mother on the ship to join him in Egypt, they didn't fly in those days, they took ships. But the very day I put her on the ship, I went uptown New York, and I went into Double Data and it was as it was called then on Fifth Avenue, and there I found Autobiography of a Yogi. And that book absolutely changed my mind. And one of the things that changed my mind was the discovery that... that uh, Finding God is not just finding peace of mind, which is the most I'd imagine you could ever get if you're seeking God, but you have such, there's such bliss and such love and such an overwhelming feeling of uh, the joy of being in Him. And I took the next bus across the country. It was a very big step for me. I had never heard the word guru. I had never heard the word yoga. I never heard the word dharma or karma or any of these things. These words are normal to your experience today, but in those days, at least I had never heard of them. But in one week, I changed completely. In one week, I went across the country nonstop, four days and four nights, ended up at his church in, in Los Angeles. And as Raghu was telling you, I said the first words I addressed to Yogananda were, I want to be your disciple. I never dreamed of being anybody's follower. I had never met anybody who I felt could give me anything that I wanted. I had left school in disgust because it wasn't giving me the truths I wanted. But when I read his book, I knew he's the man I, I can follow. He's got something to give me. And I remember as I was crossing the country to go to him, the thought was very strong in my mind, two thoughts, one, that I want to find God. And the other is that this is such a wonderful teaching, I want to share it with everybody. And I've had this, I have to say, intense 
longing to share these truths with people. And I've tried every way that I could to find the reasons for it, but I find that the most important thing is not reasons, but to share my bliss with people. If they can feel these things, that's what really changes people. So the bliss of your own meditation, the bliss that comes when you seek God, you don't have to do it. This is a very important point to remember, that the bliss of God is like the sunlight on the side of a building. If the curtains are drawn shut, the sun won't be able to come into your room. But if you open those curtains, that sun is there. So the grace of God is always shining on you. But if you cut, shut him out, how can he come in? But if you open yourself, and that's the main thing about meditation. You know, the difference between meditation and prayer is this, that in prayer you talk to God. In meditation, you listen for his answer. And when you feel in meditation, if you open yourself properly, you will feel him flooding your being. And this makes life so different that, as I said, the thought of giving up your life for others is not a sacrifice. It's a joy. It's a privilege to live for God. I know my guru said one time, living for God is martyrdom. Don't, let, don't worry. If he gives you a hard time, he probably will. <laughs> Mind you, it's not as if he cleared away the many New Age thinkers think that he, he clears the brambles from your path so you can walk more easily. The spiritual path is not like that. He's likely to throw a few thorns in the way, <laughs> not just brambles. He's likely to make it difficult because he wants to know if you really love him. I mean, think of it, poor God has been seeking you for thousands and millions of years, and you've been ignoring him. Now you turn to him, why shouldn't he want to find out if you really, want, if you really mean business? Yes, he gives you, he tests you to, your, to the limit of your powers, I will tell you that. It's not an easy path. But once you get through these things, the beautiful thing is that in the world you get a, a test, and then another test, and another test, and then none of them mean anything. And when you get there, you don't know what you've learned from it. But on the spiritual path, you <coughs> it's a road up every step of the way. Every, every test brings you more clarity. Every test brings you a freedom of karma. Every test brings you closer to God. And so I'm not offering you a path of ease. I know some New Age thought people have tried to say that everything will come to you if you do this. I'll say, maybe and maybe not. Don't worry about it. He's almost, if you, I've often thought that people who have an easy life have an unfortunate life. I know that in my horoscope, um, I don't know if you believe in astrology, but I'll tell you this anyway. I have what is known as a grand cross. All the big planets in all the fixed signs. And... Uh, I know there's an astrologer in, in Germany who says, I don't know how he can stand it. Well, to me, it's not that hard. <laughs> but the thing is that if you meet these things, they make you stronger. Be, be, fort, be, be thankful if God takes enough interest in you to test your life. Say, thank you, God. Don't blame him. First of all, it's because it's your own karma. Second, if you really are sincere, he'll try to help you to clear it up quickly. So I'm offering you a hard path, but I'll say this, it's the only path that works. You can make money. Somebody 
asked Howard Hughes, the wealthiest man in the world in his time, are you happy? Just a week before he left his body, he said, no, I can't say I'm happy. <laughs> if you look at any path that people follow, nobody who reaches the summit of his success in his path, nobody says he's gotten what he wanted. There's always something more. You always want a little more of a, um, well, there's some, always something wrong with it. I'm not going to go into details because there's so many wrong things. How many years do you live on this path? How many years do you live in this body or these bodies? I would say a few billion years, seriously. It takes five to eight million years, lifetimes, to reach the human level. And after that, well, man has the intelligence to go down as well as up. Yeah, it's not so easy. Now that you've come into this room, now that you're a part of this community, now that you're interested in these teachings, take it very seriously because it is the only thing that works. No other path will give you what you're looking for. If you look at the different paths of people that people have followed in life, there's only one class of people who say, yes, they've found what they wanted and they've, it means so much to them they're willing to give up their lives to help other people to find it. And that is the saints, those who have known God. And you look at yourself and you say, well, saint, I could never be a saint. Yes, you could be. You could be. You have to be. It's your duty to be. You are a child of God, and you will not be happy until you've finally found him. And it's easy to find him. You know, I've used the illustration before, and it's a very good one. If you have a lake that is covered with ice, you can't break through that ice by, on the whole, break through the whole ice. But if you drill at one point, you can get down into the water. And if you drill at that little point of your own ego, if you can understand that he is the one who is thinking for you, through you, acting through you. I remember I was in Hollywood Church many years ago, and some woman asked, said to me afterwards, oh, what a wonderful sermon that was. And I said, well, God is the doer. She's, really? As if, <laughs> as if to say, well, I knew it was good. I didn't know it was that good. <laughs> well, that isn't what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that God will do, a, that you'll do a great job if you let him do it through you. He has to work through filters. And you will filter him better or worse, depending on who you are. But you will find this, that the more you let him do it through you, the more you will find he can, he can, he can do a lot through you. You know, I haven't had, most people when they think, uh, when they try to do anything, they use their reason. I've used my intu intuition. When I want to write a song, for example, I've given up writing songs now because I feel that I've written all the songs that I need to sing, need to write. But when I wanted to, I would say to God, I need this, I need the song to say this, 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 and this. Then I'd offer up the thought to him and immediately I would have the melody. I didn't have to think it through, it just was there. One time I did a slideshow of Romania and because most people think of Dracula as a Romanian phenomena, actually in Romanian Dracula means devil. And the beginning of that idea was that just as you have William the Conqueror and Charles the Fat and different kings and so on, 
So this, this uh, uh, king in Romania centuries ago was called Vlad Dracula, which means he was Vlad the devil. But in, in Romanian, if you want to curse somebody, you say, Sefiral Dracula, go to the devil. Well, um, anyway, I wanted to do something just for the fun of it. It was only for fun. Mind you, these inspirations that come from God don't have to be terribly serious. But I wanted to do, <laughs> I wanted to do something that uh, would give a melody that would give the sense of Dracula. So I didn't know what to do. That's not my normal state of mind. And so I put my fingers on the piano, and I said, well, God, give me a melody that says this. Boom, 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 boom. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> and it was great fun. And you can't say it was beautifully inspired, but why should God always inspire you with solemnity? He can give you joy. He can give you fun. He can, if you ask God to guide you, you don't have to start wearing a long face. You'll find that in everything you do, there is much more fun. And this is another reason why I like, to, I like this color because it's more fun. <laughs> and the idea of orange, it's sort of authoritative. And I don't like to be an authority. I have never taught anybody. I've shared with people what little I know, and I'm happy to share what I know. But I don't think I'm teaching people. I never condescend to people. They're the same as I. We're all children of the same God. And this was an attitude I learned from my guru. Great man that he was. I found him always respectful, always humble. And uh, I know one time, it's a, it was a very strange memory of mine. There was, because he told me to grow a beard. And uh, I suppose because he had me lecturing and I was 22 years old. And by the way, that was a, an experience in itself. I had been with him eight months. And... Uh, I knew that he hadn't been to the church in San Diego for at least two months because I was the one who sent in the, the uh, notices to the papers. And the people in San Diego were uh, told to look at the paper. If they saw that he was announced for that Sunday, they would come because he would be there. So I was given the notice that uh, I should send to the San Diego Union the uh, notice that he was coming that next Sunday. And I thought how happy all those people would be. Well, Saturday morning, one of the ministers came down. And he said, Master can't go. He wants you to speak in his place. God, I mean, 22 years old. I'd never lectured before in my life. And suddenly I had to go down and give a lecture, and then I had to give a Cree initiation to some one person, thank God, not a crowd. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I wasn't at all nervous because I was so sorry for those poor people. I mean, we, we, had, we had a curtain drawn. And then when the service began, the curtain opened. So everybody was there waiting for Yogananda to appear. And suddenly he saw this boy of 22. And uh, there was a sort of visible shock. That <laughs> not only was the church full of aisles, everything was full of standing people, people looking in the windows, creating there. <laughs> it was quite an experience. But... Uh, I've never had nervousness for that reason, because I've always felt those poor people. And now I think in term more, terms more of giving than of taking. 
Uh, I don't care what they think of me. Uh, my feeling is that if I'm a fool, it doesn't hurt for people to know it. <laughs> so I'm perfectly content um, just talking and being myself. And if you think that I'm foolish for joking so much, it's okay by me. I'm just me, and I can w don't want to be different. So anyway, did I answer somebody's question or my... <laughs> <laughs> God knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Swami, before you go, I can meditate with you. Before yes, you I'll be very glad to. Yeah. But we don't have to go yet. Yes. You were talking about the working through the filters. Um, I've been meditating for a while, and I received you know, a lot of messages, and You know, doubts can be positive or negative. Negative doubts are just judging. It can't be. Positive doubt is asking yourself, is it true? To what extent is it true? You may receive guidance to go north, but if you're listening as you go, you may get guidance at the next corner to turn east. And so we should always listen. But I'm very pleased for you that you have that feeling of guidance and never presume on it. Always hold it in a certain amount of awe and respect, because you can be wrong. But the more you experiment and see, well, is it working? Look at the results. One time, Yogananda had a, <clears throat> a man come to him and said, I go into cosmic consciousness. So Master could see that he didn't, but he knew it wouldn't help him to tell him that. So he said, come into my room and meditate with me. So finally, the man sat down in his room and his eyes were blinking, it showed mental restlessness. And uh, finally, he couldn't stand it any longer, so he said, well, why don't you ask me where I am? <laughs> the master said, uh, well, tell me, where are you? He said, on top of the dome of the Taj Mahal. <laughs> the master said, well, there must be something wrong with your own dome. <laughs> I see you sitting right here. So the. The man actually had a very powerful imagination, and he thought it was true. And so Master said, well, if you can go to the Taj Mahal in India from New York, why don't you go downstairs in this hotel and tell me what you see in the restaurant in this hotel? Well, the man thought he was actually having these experiences, and so he described the downstairs, and he said, there's a piano here and a few things. And Anyway, Master said, no, it's this way, and he told who was sitting where, and so on. And they went downstairs, and he saw that Master was right, and this man was wrong. So from that demonstration, the man could see that he was sincere, he was good, but he was wrong. So with your, with your intuitions, always test them. Don't, don't let wishful thinking guide them, and you'll find you're becoming more and more clear that way. Okay? There was someone over here? Yes.
number of lifetimes, but now I'll never lose you again. And I'm wondering how we are to understand that story. I mean, is it possible? It's strange that you ask that because I don't remember it in the autobiography, but I do remember it in the new path. Yes. It was uh, Mr. Cuaron, the head of our center leader, uh, our center leader, I should say, in Mexico City. An interesting thing was that, that he didn't have a job for a long time. He had enough money to live w well enough, but he was the center leader there, and he was offered a very good job in Matamoros. And uh, he wanted to go down there, but he, asked, he decided to ask Master first, and Master's answer came back, absolutely don't accept that job for any reason at all. And he was sort of shocked, but he obeyed Master. And it came out a week later that that company was exposed for fraud, and the person who, would have ta uh, who took the job he was offered went to jail. Although he wasn't culpable, he was in that position, and so he did. So Master pre preserved him from that. He was very close to Master, but he, Master said to him, I've lost touch, I lost touch with you for a few incarnations. And now that you've come back, I won't ever lose touch with you again. And every now and then, Mr. Coron would say to him, you remember your promise, Master? And Master said, no, I'll never lose touch. <laughs> but you know what happens is, <clears throat> I asked Master this question once, because Norman Paulson had had a vision, whether it was true or not, I have no way of knowing. He said that it was on um, Lemuria. I don't know if Lemuria ever existed. It was 80,000 years ago. I don't know if it existed 80,000 years ago. I don't know anything. But he saw himself with Master then, and whether it was a true vision or not, I don't know. But I, I was appalled to think that I could have been with Master for thousands of years and still struggling here. And I said, Master, have I been your disciple for thousands of years? He said, it's been a long time. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I said, well, I didn't want to think I was the only laggard on the scene here. <laughs> so I said, well, um, is it normal to take that long? He said, oh, yes. Desires for name, fame, different things, take them away again and again. And so what we find is that you come to the spiritual path. Mind you, it's, it's one time, I think it was Norman Paulson who asked him, and was, I shouldn't say, I think so, he asked him one time, he said, Master, I don't think I have very good karma. Master answered him very seriously. He said, remember this, it takes very, very, very good karma even to want to know God. But after many, many, many incarnations, you reach the point where you want God. But these other things pull you. And somebody comes along and says, oh, you could have been a concert pianist and you suddenly get this desire. Or you could have done this, oh, you suddenly go in the... And even after you find the guru, and this, uh, to find the guru is a very great blessing. Very few people have it. Some people say to me, do I need a guru? I said, no, you don't need a guru. But once you know that you need God and you want God, then you need a guru. Like some young man who came to a saint and asked him, to take him as a disciple. And the, ma the master took him down to a river and held his wa head under water. And he finally let him up, and the man was spluttering, the young boy was spluttering. And he said, what did you want more than anything else? He said, God, <laughs> air, air, I mean air. And the guru said, when you want God like that, come back. It takes a long time, but once people come on the path, 
very often they are pulled away. I find myself extremely blessed in the people that I have attracted because I cannot see them turning their backs on the spiritual path. I think that there is a very good karma on my part to have attracted you all and a very good karma in your part that you have, once finding this path, you've stuck to it. But naturally we see people coming and going and it can take a few lifetimes. And Master at that time, he, they wandered in their desires and so on and then finally came back. But he was always there uh, keeping that thought in their minds. When I met Master, he said, I give you my unconditional love. He said, will you give me your unconditional love? I said, yes. He said, when I met my guru, he, uh, he asked me for my unconditional love. And I said, what, how could I love you unconditionally if I find that you're not a Christ-like master? Now, I don't think master really said that. I think he was saying it to me because in my past lives, I've had many, many doubts. It's what's made me a good teacher in this life that I have resolved those doubts. I don't have them anymore, but I don't think anybody could have a doubt that I haven't had. And so I can understand them. Anyway, um, where was I? The master said to Sri Yukteswar. Uh, Sri Yukteswar said, I don't want your love, it stinks. <laughs> and I'm sure he didn't have to say that to Master. But Master was saying it to me, be loyal. Be loyal in this life. And I have been loyal to him before. But there was that time in the past. There was a time, there's a very interesting book, and I, I can't go into it in depth, but... Really, when you go to India, you find some very strange things going on sometimes. <laughs> Somebody across the, um, ga across the Jamuna River from where we were staying, uh, they were digging <clears throat> in the ground, and they found this something resisting their shovels, so they dug around it. It turned out to be a yogi seated in lotus pose. <laughs> and uh, he, he, he said, and he spoke very ancient Sanskrit, and they Nobody could understand him, but they got some pundit who was able to put together what he was saying. And he said, what yuga is this? And they said, Kali Yuga. And uh, he said, oh, I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> so he just went into meditation and left his body at that time. If you come back from that state, you can't keep your body. But he said, if you dig over there, you'll find the image I used to worship before. And they dug there. So as I say, you find strange things there. For example, there's a, <laughs> a temple in India. You have to climb about a thousand steps, it seems like to me. Anyway, by the time I got up, there was... <sighs> but uh, there are these two birds. I think they're doves, but I'm not sure. But they're supposed to have been reincarnated saints who were cursed by some greater saint at some time, to come back in the bodies of these two birds. Well, you find these quaint legends in every country, and it doesn't mean a thing. But the odd thing about it is that these two birds have always been just two birds, never one, never three, always those two. They always come back for their lunch and then go off. And, I mean, are they really these saints who were cursed? I don't know, but... <laughs> You'd think after thousands of years, the number of them would vary, but it hasn't. And so I found a book in India, which uh, um, was written during the Treta Yuga, during the age when people could predict the future because they've overcome 
the delusion of time. And it gave my name there, and it gave my, it said that he was born in Romania and grew up in America, and it said that he, he his father named him James. Well, my full name is James Donald Walters, but nobody knew the name James because I always went by my, by my second name, Donald. And uh, then, besides that, I was known as Kriyananda there. And it said that uh, he has brothers, but no sister is possible, although one will die in his mother's womb. Well, I'd never heard of my mother having a miscarriage, but when I came back to America, it turned out that she had had this miscarriage. Well, in that same thing, it said that in the days of Kurukshetra, the days of the Bhagavad Gita, he was a king of a small kingdom, and he uh, left his kingdom to his son and went off and took an initiation from a guru. And um, he reached a very high state, but he argued with his guru and fell from that. And my guru said, that has been your problem for lifetimes. In this lifetime, I've overcome it. But as I said, that's why I, I, it's my job to help people. Because in helping people, I overcome any subconscious doubts that I might still have lingering there. So he had me teaching but he didn't have people who were more advanced teaching. And you'd think, well, why wouldn't he put the most advanced people there? But that it's for my sake that I'm teaching you, as well as perhaps for yours. But I'm grateful to you for giving me that chance. So any other questions? Yeah. The most challenging thing was that I, um, I was thrown out of my own organization, my own guru's organization, and that was a very big test for me. They, you know, I have to say this, man, master one time, he said to me out at the desert, he said, every man has disappointed me. I know they didn't mean that they disappointed him spiritually, but men's energy is more outward, women's is more inward. And it's a man's job to get out and conquer the world or do things in a big way. And even the sex organs indicate that, that direction. And you will see that this is a basic difference in the two. And all his men disciples have been thinking in terms of how they could find God, they could advance spiritually. It was all for them, themselves. And I had this longing to help other people. And so he said to me one time, he often told me, you have a great work to do. But he said to me this time, Apart from St. Lynn, every man has disappointed me, and you mustn't disappoint me. And I've always remembered that, that he had this deep wish that I carry on his work. Well, my sister disciples, who were all the ones in charge, I was the only man on the board of directors at the end, but they were all women, and uh, they couldn't understand what I was doing. I can understand their position, too. They used to think, well, why doesn't he just wait to be told what to do? That's unthinkable for somebody of my temperament. I just have to get out and do something. And uh, they couldn't take that, that attitude on my part. I was in my zeal to serve my guru. They decided that I was a traitor to them. And so they threw me out on my ear. And it was a very hard experience. And I don't want to even bother talking about the hardship of it because it was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. I'm grateful for it. It's enabled me to do the things that I've been able to do since then. 
But yes, that was by far the most difficult. It's still difficult. It hurts me because I, I made up my mind that uh, even if my guru has abandoned me, I will not abandon him. And even if they turn against me and fight me, I still will love them. I think it's driven them crazy. <laughs> when you want to hurt somebody and he just refuses to be hurt. <laughs> but I, I just find, I, found, I decided this, that if I would become, if I should become bitter or angry or uh, turn against them or anything, I would lose twice. I wouldn't only be thrown out, I would lose my own peace of mind. And so I resolved that I will love in spite of anything. And that, as I say, has driven them wild, but it, it's, I can't help it. I would rather love than not love. I don't even know what it's like to hate. I don't know what it's like to get angry. This is just my problem, I guess you might say. <laughs> but I, I, uh, I think it, it was a wonderful lesson in many ways to me, and I'm grateful for it. One more question, and then we'll have that meditation that you're asking for. Yes. I think you did the right thing. In the Indian scriptures, they say that you should remain loyal to your wife or your husband, but if he is uh, um, foolish, worldly, materialistic, or selfish, then you should not have to stay with that person. It's right to say that God is my true, <coughs> true purpose of living. I'm not here in this life just to help another human being. So you did the right thing in this case. And the fact that you could remain friends, I think, is excellent. But uh, I was remembering one time Yogananda said he was a young man, and this saint he went to in Bengal said, my boy, are you married? And Master said, no. And the saint said, you're on the safe side. <laughs> <laughs> he said, he said, yeah, I'm married, but the, my wife is very materialistic, but I've, I've fooled her. She doesn't know where I am. <laughs> that didn't mean that she, he'd run away from her. That meant that he was in himself, he was with God, and she couldn't reach him there. But it's harder to be with, to think of God when you're um, having to relate to somebody. I know the Rajasi, in the beginning, he was married, he had to go into the bathroom to meditate. His wife didn't understand anything about these things. So you're, um, yeah, I'm all for marriage if it works, but I'm not so sure I'm for it if it doesn't. <laughs> oh, men in those days didn't wear beards. A few do now, and you and a few others. 
but it was un unheard of then. And I would sometimes go down the street and people would shout out, Fidel Castro. <laughs> <laughs> but because of my beard, I guess somebody in the Masonic order decided that I looked like Jesus Christ. And so they had a tableau for the um, ordination of new officers or something or other. And uh, they had me there act the part of Christ at Gethsemane. And all I had to do was sort of sigh and lean heavily over the rock and get up and sigh again. <laughs> it was nothing, <laughs> nothing much. However, um, afterwards there was sort of a, a big fracas and half the people walked out in anger over some political thing in there. So Master afterwards asked me, how did it go? And I said, well, sir, he said it was a, it was a, a, a disaster, wasn't it? <laughs> and I said, yes. He said, don't talk about it. And then he said that the people were saying that you look like Jesus Christ. And I said, well, I would rather be like him than look like him. <laughs> and this is the point I wanted to make to you, because he would have said this to any one of you. That will come. Don't think of yourself as a limited person. You are a child of God, and you can become like Christ. They were born into this world to show us our potential, and everyone in this room has the potential to be like Jesus Christ, or like Babaji, or like Krishna, or like Yogananda. So keep that faith in yourself. In spite of all your faults, it's just mud over the gold of your own existence. And Ellen, you want to come here a moment? I don't often get a relative here. <laughs> so. She is my grandniece. I'm with you. Thank you all for coming. And